good afternoon. Um, it is again February 4th, two days after Groundhog's Day. Um, and my name is Vincent. Um, good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Vince. I'm Adrian Galvin. Welcome to the Book Cult Podcast. We're still talking about The Willows. This is chapter three, written by Algernon Blackwood in 1907. And it's one of the sort of iconic proto-horror stories. Okay, let's get started with some otters. So you probably remember from the first section how they saw something flopping down through the water that they thought was a body, um, but then they the Swede identified it as an otter, um, and then it went out of view. And this was just one of the strange occurrences that occurred. Um, so the last section, section two, ended with the protagonist saying how he is happy that the Swede and him aren't talking about what's happening because he don't think his reason could handle it. So section three starts off with them talking about what's happening, um, <laughs> where they are talking about uh, this queer thing, the, the otter. And they're, he, the protagonist is kind of like, I don't know what you're talking about. And the Swede's like, well, it doesn't really make sense. Um, it looked bigger than an otter. I know you saw it. The Swede's like almost trying to get the protagonist to give up uh, the information that he knows that everyone knows is going on, but the the, protag the protagonist, yeah, everyone, every two people, uh, all two of them, <laughs> and the river, and the willows. Oh, oh you're right. right. We did There's other characters. Characters, sorry. Um, <laughs> but my, this is a beautiful explanation. The protagonist explains this large kind of strange auto that they saw as the sunset, as you looked upstream, magnified it, comma or something, comma. I replied. <laughs> <laughs> um, an amazing explanation, and it just goes to how how the protagonist is continually trying to explain these uh, unexplainable events. Right. So let's go on to talking more about my favorite character, the, the Swede. Swede. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned that the main character has this tendency to kind of rationalize things that he knows are real as being not real. And that starts to cause some problems. The Swede's getting a little tired of his nonsense at this point. And for heaven's sake, I went on, this is the main character, don't keep pretending you hear things because it only gives me the jumps. And there's nothing to hear but the river and this cursed old thundering wind. Here's the Swede's response. You fool. He answered in a low, shocked voice. You utter fool. That's just the way all victims talk. And if you didn't understand just as well as I do, he sneered with scorn in his voice and a sort of resignation. The best thing you can do is to keep quiet and try to hold your mind as firm as possible. This feeble attempt at self-deception only makes the truth harder when you're forced to meet it. So this is interesting because the Swede instinctively understands that their minds are under attack. Yes, the willows are doing things to them. The willows represent the kind of like physical force of these beings. And they've broken the canoe, they've, they've taken the steering oar, they've sanded down the other paddle. So they're doing physical things to them, but the real attack is on their minds. And they can participate in it. The more that they freak out or don't pretend that it's real, they keep rationalizing, the more it will begin to realize they're there. So the Swede is saying their only defense is to kind of plow on as if it doesn't exist. And he's starting to get fed up with the main character at this point. Now before you go into talking about... Uh... The gong. The gong. Um, 
I, I realize when you're talking about this, the word victim is in there. And mm. the way the Swede is talking about how to be a victim. Right. Um, it kind of corresponds with a lot of ways that people are like training around like understanding victim and victim culture in our like society today. Oh, wow. Is that a lot of victims don't acknowledge their like abuser. Oh, they don't um, acknowledge their So it's status. really interesting that Algernon Blackwood was able to kind of, whether he knew he was doing this or not, right. but explain accurately like what it means to be a victim. Huh. Well, I guess it must be, uh, I mean, it's a common experience. Because you're powerless. History, right? If you're a victim, you're often powerless. Right. And we're going to hear a little bit about that power that holds them in sway. Ooh. Good transition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah been thinking deeply about that one <laughs> so this is the main character at first i heard only the deep note of the water and the hissings rising from its turbulent surface the willows for once were motionless and silent uh -oh. then a sound began to reach my ears faintly a peculiar sound something like the humming of a distant gong it seemed to come to us in the darkness from the waste of swamps and willows opposite it was repeated at regular intervals but it was certainly neither the sound of a bell nor the hooting of a distant steamer. I can liken it to nothing so much as the sound of an immense gong suspended far up in the sky. Repeatedly, incessantly, its muffled metallic tone soft and musical as if it was repeatedly struck. My heart quickened as I listened. So yeah, this connects back to the moment when he sees those spirits rising up into the sky because the gong radiates from the sky as well. Um, and it's this sort of pervasive thing which they've failed to notice. And they're going to note in a little bit, we won't read it, but the gong has actually been going the whole time. And that massive roar of the wind, which we've heard in the first two chapters, it kind of dies out. And because it dies out, suddenly it reveals that there's this sound that they hadn't noticed before. So it's this it's interesting because it seems very sudden, like it comes out of nowhere, everything seems to be fine, like the wind has calmed down, maybe they're going to be okay, they're making plans, and then suddenly they realize like, oh, things are actually way worse than they were before. So the, <clears throat> the protagonist is hearing this gong noise come from like random places around them. Um, sometimes it seems far away, sometimes it seems close. Um, <clears throat> and he's afraid. Uh, it is because the wind has dropped, we now hear it. It was drowned before. It is the cry, I believe, of the line. Um, and then he dashes back to the fire, and they're making food. Um, so it, it's comforting. Like, you were you were scared, but now, like, it's okay. You're going to have lunch. Um, everything's not that bad when your belly's full. Right. Um, so they initially set up this idea of, of comfort. However... The author, after introducing this idea of food comfort, then slowly starts to remove it. Um, so they come back, and they find that a loaf of bread is gone. Um, the protagonist quickly explains this by saying he forgot to buy it. Um, Likely story. Then uh, the Swede's like, well, half the oatmeal is gone. Um, a very serious problem. Yeah. Um, so then the food is continually being removed in mysterious ways. And I think this speaks to a basic human need and comfort surrounding food. Mm. And that by taking it away brings out things in people that they might not otherwise be. Because now they start to, the Swede and the protagonist begin to bicker and fight. Um, <clears throat> and I want to read this line. Um, this is the protagonist lamenting about the Swede, even talking about the fact that some food is gone. 
Why in the world need he draw attention to it? I thought angrily. So now there's emotions being attached to this because he tried to rationalize it, and now he's reacting in anger. Mm. Oh, I also want to touch on page over here. <laughs> page over Well, here. it doesn't really matter. They like, might have a different version of the book. But page 57, <laughs> if you're reading the same <laughs> copy as we are. Uh, <laughs> you got your official book cult podcast copy of the book. Oh, I'm waiting for that deal. Yeah. Albert on Blackwood's <laughs> family is going to get a cut. <laughs> We're going to be famous. <laughs> <clears throat> so the protagonist is lamenting about how terrible of a situation they are. And this is something that struck me because personally in situations like I try to fix things. Like I enjoy trying to solve problems but the worst feature this is not quoting the worst feature of this situation seemed to me that we did not know what to expect and could therefore make no sort of preparation by way of defense nice so there's they're they're stuck right um <clears throat> so let's go on to the gramophone yeah this is a fun passage because uh this gives us some some really fun 1907 science here and this is actually so i've read a bunch of hp lovecraft and lovecraft does a thing where he he sets up this idea that things are beyond science or they're beyond the knowable and he has this very strong sense of like interdimensional ancient he calls them elder gods this is hp lovecraft and this is kind of along those lines so here we go. He's talking about the sound. This is actually the sound of the gong. Main character. I don't think a gramophone would show any record of that. The sound doesn't come to me by the ears at all. The vibrations reach me in another manner altogether and seem to be within me, which is precisely how a fourth dimensional sound might be supposed to make itself heard. So on the one hand, I kind of love this because, um, you know, it's possible for sounds to be below the frequency that your ears can hear, but you still experience them and you experience them as kinetic shock. You can experience things that are sound, kind of, they're, air, they're changes in air pressure that are below the frequency that you can hear, but you still feel them. And so I, I have a little bit of the sense of that, but then he kind of goes off into this crazy thing about like fourth dimensional sounds, which I think to people from that era was probably like, oh man. That's interesting that that's dimension. how you quantify it. Cause I always assumed it's like tinnitus. Oh, yeah. Like, it's just it's like, a, it's a, you hear a noise, but no one it's else like can not hear there. it. It's not a real, like, there's nothing ringing, mm. I don't think. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Many possibilities. Gram what is a gramophone? Like a... Gramophone's that big thing with the trumpet. It's like a, oh, it's a okay. proto record player. Okay. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I know. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, this unworldly noise is occurring, and the, the Swede is describing how what is happening so the attacks that are happening on them aren't vicious it's not like alien where like there's a little xenomorph popping out of people's stomachs um the swede describes it as it's the deliberate calculating purpose that reduces one's courage to zero so the assaults aren't on their body there's no injury or harm occurring to them but their their fortitude their ability to compose themselves as we do on a day-to-day -day basis is being reduced so it's bringing humans to something that we all could be, but normally are not. Right. Yeah, that's such a good point because I feel that much of much of the horror that I've seen, the strategy has this kind of focus on the body. Mm -hmm. You see this kind of like damage to the body. Mm -hmm. You're afraid of damage to your body. Um, and these things do physically attack, right? Like the willows attack them, but they do things that are like, 
they're like waging psychological warfare. Like they do, they damage the canoe and then they steal their food and then they steal their paddle. You know, it's like if the thing, like it could just kill them, right? The I don't think could it just, could. Well, what I'm saying is in another book, I would expect that the willows would attack them. Yeah. Right. And that like, it's, it's about them getting cut up and stuff, but he's changed it so that, um, they're waging this psychological warfare, but which I think is different the, than what I would expect. What's important is I think they're insignificant. Like they're, totally. they're like flies in a kitchen. Right. Like they're not in a safe place, but like they could just not be noticed. Right. And actually we're about to hear a little bit about that. And uh, there's a nice reference to something that's basically out of Jurassic Park, but here we go. <laughs> this is the main character talking to the Swede. It's late at night. They've camped down for the evening, so they've made it through this next day. Um, I can't disguise it any longer, I said. I don't like this place, and the darkness, and the noises, and the awful feelings I get. There's something here that beats me utterly. I'm in a blue funk, <laughs> and that's the plain truth. If the other shore was different... I swear I'd be inclined to swim for it. So that's awesome because it's at night. Their canoe is broken. They have no food. He's like, yeah. And just it's jump. a flood. <laughs> yeah. It's like flood season in a giant river. He's like, yeah, let's just go swim for it. That's a great idea. <laughs> so the Swede's face turned very white beneath the deep tan of sun and wind. So that's a really interesting thing. We hear about this a couple times that the Swede, when he gets scared, he turns white. But it's not just that he turns white. He mentions that he turns white under a deep tan. Well, that, that gives him credibility because he's been outside. <laughs> right. Like, it's not like a southern debutante turning white. Mm, this is right. a hardened yes. Swede. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, moving a little bit forward. It's not a physical condition we can escape from by running. That's the Swede. He replied in the tone of a doctor diagnosing some grave disease. We must sit tight and wait. There are forces close here that could kill a herd of elephants in a second, as easily as you or I could squash a fly. Our only chance is to keep perfectly still. Our insignificance perhaps may save us. So exactly like you said, they're they're in danger from this thing that is actually like not malevolent. It just doesn't, it's other. It's just this other that could end up destroying them. And it kind of, I, I just, I remember like the moment when they think that you can escape the T-Rex by holding still and the T-Rex just destroys one of them in Jurassic Park. I just have that sense of like, they just don't know what they're talking about. But on, on some level, it seems like the Swede does know, like for some reason, the Swede knows what's going on. <laughs> like gets it. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just an odd, the author's device of like uncovering it, but mm. for like the Swede has an understanding of the world that, well, is true in this story. Right. And also otherworldly. Mm -hmm. Like the Swede just knows what's up. And that is a great transition into the Swede's solution. So <clears throat> they're talking about how, what they need to do um, to the, well, they're arguing whether it's elements or spirits or gods, um, but the Swede says it is neither. These would be comprehensible entities, for they have relations with men depending on them for worship or sacrifice. Whereas these beings, who are now about us, have absolutely nothing to do with mankind, and it is mere chance that their space happens just at the spot to touch our own. But the Swedes suggests that a sacrifice or a victim might save us by distracting them until we could get away. So it's interesting that most gods and in most like uh, religious structures want sacrifice directly to them. 
Whereas they're making the suggestion that a sacrifice could be a, a decoy. Like the, the, the gods, these beings aren't going to want this sacrifice, but it'll just like a living thing will distract them. Right. Well, in that he knows that it must happen. Like there's an inevitability to it that in the same way that their island is just inevitably being eroded and there just will be a time when the island is gone. Yeah, exactly. That there's something is going to die. That's part of the law of this place that like a thing will be killed by these creatures. And so he sort of suggests this like bait and switch thing where maybe if they can get something else to die, they can get away. Which is interesting because they never suggest that it, I'm always wondering like, well, is it going to be the Swede or is right. it going to be the protagonist? Yeah. Like who, who's, who's going to be get it? Well, we will find out in section four. Oh. Cool. Thanks for listening guys.